This is the final chapter of our text, chapter 30, on life in the universe. And there are four sections of this chapter. They are 30.1, the cosmic context for life, 30.2, astrobiology, <laughs> 30.3, searching for life beyond Earth, and 30.4, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The opening figure is figure 30.1, titled Astrobiology, the Road to Life in the Universe. And the caption reads, In this fanciful montage produced by a NASA artist, we see one roadmap for discovering life in the universe. Learning more about the origin, evolution, and properties of life on Earth aids us in searching for evidence of life beyond our planet. Our neighbor world, Mars, had warmer, wetter conditions billions of years ago that might have helped life there begin. Farther out, Jupiter's moon Europa represents the icy moons of the outer solar system. Beneath their shells of solid ice may lie vast oceans of liquid water that could support biology. Beyond our solar system, there are stars that host their own planets, some of which may be similar to Earth in the ability to support liquid water and a thriving biosphere at the planet's surface. Research is pushing actively in all these directions with the goal of proving a scientific answer to the question, are we alone? As we've learned more about the universe, we have naturally wondered whether there might be other forms of life out there. The ancient question, are we alone in the universe, connects us to generations of humans before us. While in the past this question was in the realm of philosophy or science fiction, today we have the means to seek an answer through scientific inquiry. In this chapter, we will consider how life began on Earth, whether the same processes could have led to life on other worlds, and how we might seek evidence of life elsewhere. This is the science of astrobiology. The search for life on other planets is not the same as the search for intelligent life, which, if it exists, is surely much rarer. Learning more about the origin, evolution, and properties of life on Earth aids us in searching for evidence of all kinds of life beyond that on our planet. This is section 30.1, the cosmic context for life. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. One, describe the chemical and environmental conditions that make Earth hospitable to life. Two, discuss the assumption underlying the Copernican principle and outline its implications for modern-day astronomers. And three, understand the questions underlying the Fermi paradox. We saw that the universe was born in the Big Bang about 14 billion years ago. After the initial hot, dense fireball of creation cooled sufficiently for atoms to exist, all matter consisted of hydrogen and helium, with a very small amount of lithium. As the universe aged, processes within stars created the other elements, including those that make up Earth, such as iron, silicon, and magnesium, and those required for life as we know it, such as carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. These and other elements combined in space to produce a wide variety of compounds that form the basis for life on Earth. In particular, life on Earth is based on the presence of a key unit known as an organic molecule, a molecule that contains carbon. Especially important are the hydrocarbons, chemical compounds made up entirely of hydrogen and carbon, which serve as the basis for our biological chemistry or biochemistry. While we don't understand the details of how life on Earth began, it's clear that to make creatures like us possible, 
events like the ones we described must have occurred, resulting in what is called the chemical evolution of the universe. What made Earth hospitable to life? About five billion years ago, a cloud of gas and dust in this cosmic neighborhood began to collapse under its own weight. Out of this cloud formed the sun and its planets, together with all the smaller bodies, such as comets, that also orbit the sun. The third planet from the sun, <laughs> as it cooled, eventually allowed the formation of large quantities of liquid water on its surface. That's the third rock. <laughs> the chemical variety and moderate conditions on Earth eventually led to the formation of molecules that can make copies of themselves, that is, reproduce, <laughs> which is essential for the beginning of life. Over the billions of years of Earth history, life evolved and became more complex. The course of evolution was punctuated by an occasional planet-wide change caused by collisions with some of the smaller bodies that did not make it into the sun or on one of its accompanying worlds. As it turns out, mammals may owe their domination of Earth's surface to just such a collision 65 million years ago, which led to the extinction of the dinosaurs, along with the majority of other living things. The details of such mass extinctions are currently the focus of a great deal of scientific interest. Through many twists and turns, the course of evolution on Earth produced a creature with self-consciousness, able to ask questions about its origins and place in the cosmos. Like most of Earth, this creature is composed of atoms that were forged in earlier generations of stars, in this case assembled into both its body and its brain. We might say that through the thoughts of human beings, the matter in the universe can become aware of itself. <laughs> Think about those atoms in your body for a minute. They are merely on loan to you from the lending library of atoms that make up our local corner of the universe. Atoms of many kinds circulate through your body and then leave it. Each breath that you inhale and exhale, the food that you eat and excrete, even the atoms that take up more permanent residence in your tissues will not be part of you much longer than you are alive. Ultimately, you will return your atoms to the vast reservoir of Earth, where they will be incorporated into other structures, and even other living things in the millennia to come. This picture of cosmic evolution, of our descent from stars, has been obtained through the efforts of scientists in many fields over many decades. Some of its details are still tentative and incomplete, but we feel reasonably confident in its broad outlines. It's remarkable how much we have been able to learn in the short time we have had the instruments to probe the physical nature of the universe. The Copernican Principle. Our study of astronomy has taught us that we have always been wrong in the past whenever we have claimed that Earth is somehow unique. Galileo, using his newly invented technology of the telescope, and let me just say that the telescope existed already, he just made it slightly better, showed us that Earth is not the center of the solar system, but merely one of a number of objects orbiting the sun. Our study of the stars has demonstrated that the sun itself is a rather undistinguished star halfway through its long main sequence stage, like so many billions of others. There seems to be nothing special about our position in the Milky Way either, and nothing surprising about our galaxy's position in either its own group or its supercluster. The discovery of planets around other stars confirms our ideas that the formation of planets is a natural consequence of the formation of stars. We have identified thousands of exoplanets, planets orbiting around other stars, from huge ones orbiting close to their stars, informally called hot Jupiters, down to planets smaller than Earth. 
A steady stream of exoplanet discoveries is leading to the conclusion that Earth-like planets occur frequently, enough that there are many billions of exo-Earths in our own Milky Way galaxy alone. From a planetary perspective, smaller planets are not unique. Philosophers of science sometimes call this idea that there is nothing special about our place in the universe, the Copernican Principle. Given all of the above, most scientists would be surprised if life were limited to our planet and had started nowhere else. There are billions of stars in our galaxy old enough for life to have developed on a planet around them, and there are billions of other galaxies as well. Astronomers and biologists have long conjectured that a series of events similar to those the early Earth pro- on the early Earth probably led to living organisms on many planets around other stars, and possibly even on other planets in our solar system, such as Mars. The real scientific issue, which we do not currently know the answer to, is whether organic biochemistry is likely or unlikely in the universe at large. Are we a fortunate and exceedingly rare outcome of chemical evolution? Or is organic biochemistry a regular part of the chemical evolution of the cosmos? We don't yet know the answer to this question, but data, even an exceedingly small amount, like finding unrelated to us living systems on a world like Europa, will help us arrive at it. So where are they? If the Copernican principle is applied to life, then biology may be rather common among planets. Taken to its logical limit, the Copernican principle also suggests that intelligent life like us might be common. Intelligence like ours has some very special properties, including an ability to make progress through the application of technology. Organic life around the older stars may have started a billion years earlier than we did on Earth, so they may have had a lot more time to develop advanced technology, such as sending information, probes, or even life forms between stars. Faced with such a prospect, physicist Enrico Fermi asked the question several decades ago that's now called the Fermi Paradox. Where are they? If life and intelligence are common and have such tremendous capacity for growth, why is there not a network of galactic civilizations whose presence extends even into the latecomer planetary system like ours? Several solutions have been suggested to the Fermi Paradox. Perhaps life is common, but intelligence, or at least technological civilization, is rare. Perhaps such a network will come about in the future, but has not yet had enough time to develop. Maybe there are invisible streams of data flowing past us all the time that we're not advanced enough or sensitive enough to detect. Maybe advanced species make it a practice not to interfere with immature developing consciousness such as our own. Or perhaps civilizations that reach a certain level of technology then self-destruct, meaning that there is no other civilization now existing in our galaxy. We do not yet know whether any advanced life is out there, and if it is, why we are still not aware of it. Still, you might want to keep these issues in mind as you read the rest of this chapter, or listen to it. The section ends with a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, is there a network of galactic civilizations beyond our solar system? If so, why can't we see them? Explore the possibilities in the cartoon video, (laughs) The Fermi Paradox, Where Are All the Aliens? Section 30.2, Astrobiology. By the end of the section, you should be able to do four things. One, describe the chemical building blocks required for life. 
Two, describe the molecular systems and processes driving the origin and evolution of life. Three, describe the characteristics of a habitable environment. And four, describe some of the extreme conditions on Earth. These are interesting. And explain how certain organisms have adapted to these conditions. Scientists today take a multidisciplinary approach to studying the origin, evolution, distribution, and ultimate fate of life in the universe. This field of study is known as astrobiology. You may also sometimes hear this field referred to as exobiology or bioastronomy. Astrobiology brings together astronomers, planetary scientists, chemists, geologists, and biologists, and others to work on the same problems from their various perspectives and bring their expertise to questions. Among the issues that astrobiologists explore are the conditions in which life arose on Earth and the reasons for the extraordinary adaptability of life on our planet. They are also involved in identifying habitable worlds beyond Earth and in trying to understand in practical terms how to look for life on those worlds. Let's look at some of these issues in more detail. The building blocks of life. While no unambiguous evidence for life has yet been found anywhere beyond Earth, life's chemical building blocks have been detected in a wide range of extraterrestrial environments. Meteorites have been found to contain two kinds of substances whose chemical structures mark them as having an extraterrestrial origin, amino acids and sugars. Amino acids are organic compounds that are the molecular building blocks of proteins, and proteins are key biological molecules that provide the structure and function of the body's tissues and organs and essentially carry out the work of the cell. When we examine the gas and dust around comets, we also find a number of organic molecules, compounds that on Earth are associated with the chemistry of life. Expanding beyond our solar system, one of the most interesting results of modern radio astronomy has been the discovery of organic molecules in giant clouds of gas and dust between the stars. More than 100 different molecules have been identified in these reservoirs of cosmic raw material, including formaldehyde, alcohol, and others we know as important stepping stones to the development of life on Earth. Using radio telescopes and radio spectrometers, astronomers can measure the abundances of various chemicals in these clouds. We find organic molecules most readily in regions where the interstellar dust is most abundant, and it turns out that these are precisely the regions where star formation, and probably planet formation, happen most easily. Clearly, the early Earth itself produced some of the molecular building blocks of life. Since the early 1950s, scientists have tried to duplicate in their laboratories the chemical pathways that led to life on our planet. In a series of experiments known as the Miller-Urey experiments pioneered by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey at the University of Chicago, biochemists have simulated conditions on early Earth and have been able to produce some of the fundamental building blocks of life including those that form proteins and other biological molecules known as nucleic acids, which we'll discuss shortly. By the way, I really wanted to go to the University of Chicago as an undergraduate student, but I was too scared to apply because I thought they would not let me in. And what I've learned since then is that if you don't try, you'll never have the opportunity to maybe go. <laughs> so the worst thing that can happen is they'll say no, but I didn't even give them that opportunity, and that's okay. 
Moving on. Okay. Although these experiments produce encouraging results, there are some problems with them. The most interesting chemistry from a biological perspective takes place with hydrogen-rich or reducing gases such as ammonia and methane. However, the early atmosphere of Earth was probably dominated by carbon dioxide, as Venus's and Mars's atmospheres still are today. It may not have contained an abundance of reducing gases comparable to that used in the Miller-Urey type experiments. Hydrothermal vents, which are seafloor systems in which ocean water is superheated and circulated through crustal or mantle rocks before re-emerging into the ocean, have also been suggested as potential contributors of organic compounds in the early Earth, and such sources would not require Earth to have an early reducing atmosphere. Both earthly and extraterrestrial sources may have contributed to Earth's early supply of organic molecules, although we have more direct evidence for the latter. It's even conceivable that life itself originated elsewhere and was seeded onto our planet. <laughs> We're all aliens. <laughs> although this, of course, does not solve the problem of how that life originated to begin with. We've reached a link to Learning Box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link, or in this case, links, in the box. It reads, hydrothermal vents are beginning to seem more likely as early contributors to the organic compounds found on Earth. Read about hydrothermal vents and watch videos and slideshows on these and other deep sea wonders at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution website. Try an interactive simulation of hydrothermal vent circulation at the Dive and Discover website. Again, I have a comment. At some point in my life, I really wanted to work at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and I didn't try. And so, another life lesson right there. If you don't try, you're not going to get what you'd like. Another side note, just last night, my partner and I were talking about Enceladus, which is the sixth largest moon of Saturn. And Enceladus is covered with ice, and it actually has, we believe, uh, a large ocean beneath the ice. And as it makes its journey around Saturn, it actually, under the stress of tidal forces, will erupt geysers <laughs> that spew out into space a lot of water. And we think it's a lot of salt water, and it actually leaves a ring around the, um, the moon and contributes to the E-ring of Saturn. So that's just some interesting information to think about when we consider life possibly on other places, including places in our own solar system. Continuing the reading, the origin and early evolution of life. The carbon compounds that form the chemical basis of life may be common in the universe, but it's still a giant step from these building blocks into a living cell. Even the simplest molecules of the genes, which are the basic functional units carrying genetic or hereditary material into a cell, contain millions of molecular units, each arranged in a precise sequence. Furthermore, even the most primitive life required two special capabilities. One, a means of extracting energy from its environment, and two, a means of encoding and replicating information in order to make faithful copies of itself. Biologists today can see ways that either of these capabilities might have formed in a natural environment, but we're still a long way from knowing how the two came together in the first life forms. We have no solid evidence for the pathway that led to the origin of life on our planet, except for whatever early history may be retained in the biochemistry of modern life. 
Indeed, we have very little direct evidence of what Earth itself was like during its earliest history. <laughs> Our planet is so effective at resurfacing itself through plate tectonics that very few rocks remain from this early period. As it turns out, Earth was subjected to heavy bombardment, a period of large impact events some 3.8 to 4.1 billion years ago. Large impacts would have been energetic enough to sterilize the surface layers of Earth so that even if life had begun by this time, it might well have been wiped out. When the large impacts ceased, the scene was set for a more peaceful environment on our planet. If the oceans of Earth contained accumulated organic material from any of these sources already mentioned, the ingredients were available to make living organisms. We don't understand in any detail the sequence of events that led from molecules to biology, but there is fossil evidence of microbial life in the 3.5 billion year old rocks that we do have, and possible debated evidence for life as far back as 3.8 billion years. Life as we know it employs two main molecular systems, the functional molecules known as proteins, which carry out the chemical work of the cell, and information-containing molecules of DNA that store information about how to create the cell and its chemical and structural components. The origin of life is sometimes considered a chicken and an egg problem. And this is because in modern biology, neither of these systems works without the other. It's our proteins that assemble DNA strands for the precise order required to store information. But the proteins are created based on information stored in the DNA. So which came first? Some origin of life researchers believe that prebiotic chemistry was based on molecules that could both store information and do the chemical work of the cell. It's been suggested that RNA, a molecule that aids the flow of genetic information from DNA to proteins, might have served such a purpose. The idea of an early RNA world has become increasingly accepted, but a great deal remains to be understood about the origin of life. Perhaps the most important innovation in the history of biology, apart from the origin of life itself, was the discovery of the process of photosynthesis, the complex sequence of chemical reactions through which some living things can use sunlight to manufacture products that store energy, such as carbohydrates, releasing oxygen as one byproduct. Previously, life had to make do with the sources of chemical energy available on Earth or delivered from space, but the abundant energy available in sunlight could support a larger and more productive biosphere, as well as some biochemical reactions not previously possible for life. One of these was the production of oxygen as a waste product from carbon dioxide, and the increase in atmospheric levels of oxygen about 2.4 billion years ago means that oxygen-producing photosynthesis must have emerged and become globally important by this time. In fact, it's likely that oxygen-producing photosynthesis emerged considerably earlier. Some forms of chemical evidence contained in ancient rocks, such as the solid layer rock formations known as stromatolites, are thought to be the fossils of oxygen-producing photosynthetic bacteria in rocks that are almost 3.5 billion years old. It's generally thought that a simpler form of photosynthesis that does not produce oxygen and is still used by some bacteria today probably preceded the oxygen-producing photosynthesis, and there's a strong fossil evidence that one or the other type of photosynthesis was functioning on Earth at least as far back as 3.4 billion years ago. The free oxygen produced by photosynthesis began accumulating in our atmosphere about 2.4 billion years ago. 
And the interaction of sunlight with oxygen can produce ozone, which has three atoms of oxygen per molecule as compared to the two atoms per molecule in the oxygen we breathe. The ozone accumulated in a layer high in Earth's atmosphere. As it does on Earth today, this ozone layer provided protection from the sun's damaging ultraviolet radiation, and this allowed life to colonize on land masses of our planet instead of remaining only in the ocean. The rise in oxygen levels was deadly to some microbes because as a highly reactive chemical, oxygen can irreversibly damage some of the biomolecules that early life had developed and depended on. For other microbes, however, it was a boon. Combining oxygen with organic matter or other reduced chemicals generates a lot of energy. <laughs> this is what happens when we see a log burned, but the energy released in that case comes off as heat and light in the form of fire. Many forms of life adopted this way of living. This new energy source made possible a great proliferation of organisms, which continued to evolve in an oxygen-rich environment. The details of that evolution are probably the subject of biology courses, but the process of evolution by natural selection, survival of the fittest, provides a clear explanation for the development of Earth's remarkable variety of life forms. It doesn't, however, directly solve the mystery of life's earliest beginnings. We hypothesize that life will arise whenever conditions are appropriate, but this hypothesis is just another form of the Copernican principle. We now have the potential to address this hypothesis with observations. If a second example of life is found in our solar system or a nearby star, it would imply that life emerges commonly enough that the universe is likely to be filled with biology. To make such observations, we must first decide where to focus our search. We've reached another link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, just how did life arise in the first place? And could it have happened with a different type of chemistry? Watch the 15-minute video, Making Matter Come Alive, in which a chemistry expert explores some answers to these questions. The video comes from a 2011 TED Talk. Now let's turn our attention to habitable environments. The video is from a 2011 TED Talk. Now let's turn our attention to habitable environments. Among the staggering number of objects in our solar system, galaxy, and universe, some may have conditions suitable for life, while others do not. Understanding what conditions and features make a habitable environment, which is an environment capable of hosting life, is important both for understanding how widespread habitable environments may be in the universe and for focusing a search for life beyond Earth. Here, we discuss the habitability from the perspective of life we know. We'll explore the basic requirements of life and, in the following section, consider the full range of environmental conditions on life where life is found. <laughs> on Earth where life is found. <laughs> While we can't entirely rule out the possibility that other life forms may have biochemistry based on alternatives to carbon and liquid water, such life as we don't know it is still completely speculative. In our discussion here, we'll focus on the habitability of life that is chemically similar to that on Earth. Life requires a solvent, a liquid in which chemicals can dissolve, that enables the construction of biomolecules and the interactions between them. For life as we know it, that solvent is water, which has a variety of properties that are critical to how our biochemistry works. 
Water is abundant in the universe, but life requires that water be in liquid form rather than ice or gas in order to properly fill its role in biochemistry. That's the case only within a certain range of temperatures and pressures. Too high or too low in either variable, and water takes the form of a solid or a gas. Identifying environments where water is present within the appropriate range of temperature and pressure is therefore an important first step in identifying habitable environments. Indeed, follow the water strategy has been and continues to be a driver in the exploration of planets both within and beyond our solar system. Our biochemistry is based on molecules made of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Carbon is at the core of organic chemistry, its ability to form four bonds, both with itself and with other elements of life, allows for the formation of a vast number of potential molecules on which to base biochemistry. The remaining elements contribute structure and chemical reactivity to our biomolecules and form the basis of many of the interactions among them. These biogenic elements, sometimes referred to with the acronym CHNOPS, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur, are the raw materials from which life is assembled, and an accessible supply of them is a second requirement for habitability. One thing that you know is that carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and even sulfur are all formed by fusion within stars and then distributed out into their galaxy as those stars die. But how they're distributed among planets that form within the new star system, in what form they're distributed, and how chemical, physical, and geological processes on those planets cycle the elements into structures that are accessible to biology can have significant impacts on the distribution of life. For example, let's consider phytoplankton, which are simple organisms that are the base of the ocean food chain. In Earth's oceans, the abundance of phytoplankton in surface waters can vary by a thousandfold because the supply of nitrogen differs from place to place. Understanding what processes control the accessibility of elements at all scales is therefore a critical part of identifying habitable environments. With these first two requirements, we have the elemental raw materials of life and a solvent in which to assemble them into the complicated molecules that drive our biochemistry. But carrying out that assembly and maintaining the complicated biochemical machinery of life takes energy. <laughs> you fulfill your own requirement for energy every time you eat food or take a breath, and you would not live for long if you failed to do either on a regular basis. Life on Earth makes use of two main types of energy. For you, these are the oxygen and air that you breathe and the organic molecules in your food. But life overall can use a much wider array of chemicals, and while all animals require oxygen, many bacteria do not. One of the earliest known life processes, which still operates in some modern microorganisms, combines hydrogen and carbon dioxide to make methane, releasing energy in the process. There are microorganisms that breathe metals that would be toxic to us, and even some that breathe in sulfur and breathe out sulfuric acid. Plants and photosynthetic microorganisms have also evolved mechanisms to use the energy of light directly. Water in the liquid phase, the biogenic elements, and energy are fundamental requirements for habitability. But are there additional environmental constraints? We consider this in the next section. Life in extreme conditions. This is crazy. 
At a chemical level, life consists of many types of molecules that interact with one another to carry out processes of life. In addition to water, elemental raw materials, and energy, life also needs an environment in which those complicated molecules are stable. That means where they don't break down before they can do their jobs, and where their interactions are possible. Your own biochemistry works properly only within a very narrow range of about 10 degrees Celsius in the body temperature and two-tenths of a unit in blood pH. pH is a numerical measure of acidity, or the amount of free hydrogen ions. Beyond those limits, you are in serious danger. Life overall must also have limits to the conditions in which it can work properly, but as we'll see, they are much broader than human limits. The resources that fuel life are distributed across a wide range of conditions. For example, there is abundant chemical energy to be had in hot springs that are essentially boiling acid. <laughs> this provides ample incentive for evolution to fill as much of that range with life as is biochemically possible. An organism, usually a microbe, that tolerates or even thrives under conditions that most life around us would consider hostile, such as very high or low temperature or acidity, is known as an extremophile. Let's consider some of the conditions that can challenge life and the organisms that have managed to carve out a niche at the far reaches of possibility. Both high and low temperatures can cause a problem for life. As a large organism, you are able to maintain an almost constant body temperature, whether it's colder or warmer in the environment around you. But this is not possible at the tiny size of microorganisms. Whatever the temperature in the outside world is, is also the temperature of the microbe, and its biochemistry must be able to function at that temperature. High temperatures are the enemy of complexity. Increasing thermal energy tends to break apart big molecules into smaller and smaller bits. And life needs to stabilize in the molecules with stronger bonds and special proteins. But this approach has limits. Nevertheless, as noted earlier, high temperature environments like hot springs and hydrothermal vents often offer abundant resources of chemical energy and therefore drive the evolution of organisms that can tolerate high temperature. Such an organism is called a thermophile. Currently, the high temperature record holder is a methane producing microorganism that lives and grows at 122 degrees Celsius in areas where the pressure is also so high <laughs> that the water does not boil. That's amazing when you think about it. We cook our food, meaning we alter the chemistry and structure of its biomolecules by boiling it at a temperature of 100 degrees Celsius. In fact, food begins to cook at much lower temperatures than, than this, and there are organisms whose biochemistry remains intact and operates just fine at temperatures 20 degrees Celsius higher. As a side note, 120 degrees Celsius is equal to 248 degrees Fahrenheit, not living conditions that I would enjoy or obviously survive in. Cold can also be a problem, in part because it slows down metabolism to very low levels, but also because it can cause physical changes in biomolecules. Cell membranes, the molecular envelopes that surround cells and allow their exchange of chemicals with the world outside, are basically made of fat-like molecules. And just as fat congeals when it's cool, membranes crystallize, changing how they function in the exchange of materials in and out of the cell. Some cold-adapted cells have changed the chemical composition of their membranes in order to cope with this problem, but again there are limits. Thus far, the coldest temperature at which any microbe has shown to reproduce is about negative 25 degrees Celsius. That's about negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit.
Conditions that are very acidic or alkaline can also be problematic for life because many of our important molecules, like proteins and DNA, are broken down under such conditions. For example, household drain cleaner, which does its job by breaking down the chemical structure of things like hair clogs, is a very alkaline solution. The most acid-tolerant organisms are capable of living at pH values near zero, about 10 million times more acidic than your blood. At the other extreme, some organisms can grow at pH levels of about 13, which is comparable to the pH of household bleach, and almost a million times more alkaline than your blood. High levels of salt in the environment can also cause a problem for life because the salt blocks some cellular functions. Humans recognized this centuries ago and began to salt cure food to keep it from spoiling, meaning to keep it from being colonized by microorganisms. Yet some microbes have evolved to grow in water that is saturated with sodium chloride or table salt, about 10 times as salty as seawater. Very high pressures can literally squeeze life's biomolecules, causing them to adopt more compact forms that do not work very well. But we still find life, not just microbial, but even animal life, at the bottoms of our ocean trenches, where pressures are more than a thousand times the atmospheric pressure. Many other adaptations to environmental extremes are also known. There is even an organism that can tolerate ionizing radiation, such as that released by radioactive elements, a thousand times more intense than you or I would be able to withstand. It's also very good at surviving extreme desiccation, which is drying out, and a variety of metals that would be toxic to humans. For many such examples, we can conclude that life is capable of tolerating a wide range of environmental extremes, so much so that we have to work hard to identify places where life can't exist. A few such places are known. For example, the waters of hydrothermal vents at over 300 degrees Celsius appear too hot to support any life, and finding these places helps to find the possibility for life elsewhere. The study of extremophiles over the last few decades has expanded our sense of the range of conditions life can survive, and in doing so has made many scientists more optimistic about the possibility that life might exist beyond Earth. Section 30.3, Searching for Life Beyond Earth. By the end of this section, you should be able to do four things. One, outline what we have learned from the exploration of the environment on Mars. Two, identify where in the solar system life is most likely sustainable and why. Three, describe some key missions and their findings in our search for life beyond the solar system. And four, explain the use of biomarkers in the search for evidence of life beyond our solar system. Astronomers and planetary scientists continue to search for life in the solar system and the universe at large. In this section, we discuss two kinds of searches. First, the direct exploration of planets within our own solar system, especially Mars and some of the icy moons of the outer solar system. Second is the even more difficult task of searching for evidence of life, a biomarker, on planets encircling other stars. In the next section, we'll examine SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. As you'll see, the approaches taken in these three cases are very different, even though the goal of each is the same, and that's to determine if life on Earth is unique in the universe.
Let's turn our attention to life on Mars, and we're going to rely on the text for some of this to look at recent history in exploring Mars, and then we're going to turn to an article by NASA because we've just landed a new rover on Mars to look for ancient microbial life, and so it'll be nice to have that information as well. Life on Mars. The possibility that Mars hosts or has hosted life has a rich history dating back to the canals that some people claim to see on the Martian surface toward the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. With the dawn of the space age came the possibility to address this question up close through a progression of missions to Mars that began with the first successful flyby of a robotic spacecraft in 1964 and have led to the deployment of five different rovers from NASA. The earliest missions to Mars provided some hints that liquid water, one of life's primary requirements, may have once flowed freely on the surface, and later missions have strengthened this conclusion. The NASA Viking landers, whose purpose was to search directly for evidence of life on Mars, arrived on Mars in 1976. Vikings' onboard instruments found no organic molecules, the stuff of which life is made, and no evidence of biological activity in the Martian soils it analyzed. This result is not particularly surprising because despite the evidence of flowing water in the past, liquid water on the surface of Mars is generally not stable today. Over much of Mars, temperatures and pressures at the surface are so low that pure water would either freeze or, because of a low pressure, boil away. <laughs> to make matters worse, unlike Earth, Mars does not have a magnetic field and ozone layer to protect the surface from harmful solar ultraviolet radiation and energetic particles. However, Vikings' analyses of the soil said nothing about whether life may have existed in the distant past on Mars, when liquid water was more abundant. We do know that water in the form of ice exists in abundance on Mars, not so deep beneath the surface. Water vapor is also a constituent of the atmosphere of Mars. Since the visit of the Viking, our understanding of Mars has deepened spectacularly. Orbiting spacecraft have provided ever more detailed images of the surface and detected the presence of minerals that could have formed only in the presence of liquid water. Two bold surface missions, the Mars Exploration Rover's Spirit and Opportunity, followed by the much larger Curiosity Rover, confirmed these remote sensing data. All three rovers found abundant evidence for past history of liquid water, revealed not only from the mineralogy of the rocks analyzed, but also from the unique layering of rock formations. Curiosity went a step beyond evidence for water and confirmed the existence of habitable environments on ancient Mars. Habitable means not only that liquid water was present, but that life's requirements for energy and elemental raw materials could have also been met. The strongest evidence of ancient habitable environment came from analyzing a very fine-grained rock of mudstone, a rock that is widespread on Earth but was unknown on Mars until Curiosity found it. The mudstone can tell us a great deal about the wet environments in which it formed. Five decades of robotic exploration have allowed us to develop a picture of how Mars evolved through early time. Early Mars had epochs of warmer and wetter conditions that would have been conducive to life at the surface. However, Mars eventually lost much of its early atmosphere and the surface began to dry up. As that happened, the ever-shrinking reservoirs of liquid water on the Martian surface became saltier and more acidic, until the surface finally had no significant liquid water and was bathed in a harsh solar radiation. The surface thus became uninhabitable, but this might not be the case for the planet overall. 
Reservoirs of ice and liquid water could still exist underground, where pressure and temperature conditions make it stable. There's recent evidence to support that liquid water, perhaps very salty water, can occasionally and briefly flow onto the surface even today. Thus, Mars might even have habitable conditions in the present day, but of a much different sort than we normally think of on Earth. Our study of Mars reveals a planet with a fascinating history, one that saw its ability to host life dwindle billions of years ago, but perhaps allowing life to adapt and survive in favorable environmental niches. Even if it did not survive, we expect that we might find evidence of life if it ever took hold on Mars. If it's there, it's hidden in the crust, and we're still learning how to best decipher that evidence. Now let's take a moment to consider the five rovers that the United States has sent to Mars. The first was Sojourner, which landed on Mars in 1996 and was operational for 85 days. The second was Spirit, which landed in 2004 and was operational for 2,269 days. The third, Opportunity, which also landed in 2004 and was operational for 5,498 days. The fourth was Curiosity, which landed in 2012 and was operational for 3,129 days. And the fifth landed February 2021. That's last month, <laughs> and it's been operational since it landed February 18th. I'm going to read an article to you about the rover that just landed. The article was published February 17th, 2021, and it was written by the NASA science team, and it's published on a NASA site. The title of the article is Searching for Life in NASA's Perseverance Mars Samples, and the article reads, NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance rover will be the agency's ninth mission to land on the red planet. Just an aside, five of those have been rovers. The others have been landers of some other kind. Along with characterizing the planet's geology and climate and paving the way for human exploration beyond the moon, the rover is focused on astrobiology, or the study of life throughout the universe. Perseverance is tasked with searching for telltale signs that microbial life may have lived on Mars billions of years ago. It will collect rock samples and metal tubes, and future missions would return these samples to Earth for deeper study. To quote Carl Sagan, said Gentry Lee, chief engineer for the Planetary Science Directorate at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, if we see a hedgehog staring in the camera, we would know that there's current and certainly ancient life on Mars. <laughs> but based on our past experience, such an event is extremely unlikely. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and the discovery that life existed elsewhere in the universe would certainly be extraordinary. Mars 2020 mission scientists believe that Jezero Crater, the landing site for Perseverance, could be home to such evidence. They know that 3.5 billion years ago, Jezero was the site of a large lake complete with its own river delta. They believe that while water may be long gone, somewhere within the 28-mile-wide crater, or perhaps along its 2,000-foot-tall rim, biosignatures could be waiting. We expect the best places to look for biosignatures would be in Jezero's lake bed or in the shoreline sediments that could be encrusted with carbonate materials, which are especially good at preserving certain kinds of fossilized life on Earth, said Ken Williford, deputy project scientist for the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover mission at JPL. But as we search for evidence of ancient microbes on an ancient alien world, it's important to keep an open mind. 
NASA's fifth rover to the fourth planet from the sun carries a new suite of scientific instruments to build on the discoveries of NASA's Curiosity rover, which has found that parts of Mars could have supported microbial life billions of years ago. Hunting for biosignatures. Any hunt for biosignatures will include the rover's suite of cameras, especially MastCam Z, located on the rover's mast, which can zoom in to inspect scientifically interesting targets. <laughs> Isn't that cool? The mission science team can task Perseverance SuperCam instrument, also on the mast, to fire a laser at a promising target, generating a small plasma cloud that can be analyzed to help determine its chemical composition. If those data are intriguing enough, the, the team could command the rover's robotic arm to go in for a closer look. To do that, Perseverance will rely on one of two instruments on the turret at the end of its arm. Pixel, the planetary instrument for X-ray lithochemistry, will employ its tiny but powerful X-ray beam to search for potential chemical fingerprints of past life. And the Sherlock instrument has its own laser that can detect concentrations of organic molecules and minerals that have been formed in watery environments. Together, Sherlock and Pixel will provide high-resolution maps of elements, minerals, and molecules in Martian rocks and sediments, enabling astrobiologists to assess their composition and determine the most promising cores to collect. An enduring hope of the science team is to find a surface feature that couldn't be attributed to anything other than ancient microbial life. One such feature could be something like a stromatolite. On Earth, stromatolites are wavy, rocky mounds formed long ago by microbial life along ancient shorelines and in other environments where metabolic energy and water were plentiful. Such a conspicuous feature would be difficult to chalk up to geological processes. Yes, there are certain shapes that form in rocks where it's extremely difficult to imagine an environment devoid of life that could cause that shape to form, said Williford. But that said, there are chemical or geologic mechanisms that could cause domed layers, domed layered rocks like we typically think of as a stromatolite. Enter Perseverance's sample caching system. The streamer trunk size collection of motors, planetary gearboxes, and sensors is among the most complex, capable, and cleanest mechanisms ever sent into space. With it, the science team will collect the most intriguing samples they find, store them in sample tubes, and later deposit them so that future missions can collect the sample tubes and fly them back to Earth for analysis. The instrumentation required to definitively prove microbial life once existed on Mars is too large and too complex to bring to Mars, said Bobby Braun, the Mars Sample Return Program Manager at JPL. That's why NASA is partnering, partnering with the European Space Agency on a multi-mission effort called the Mars Sample Return to retrieve the samples Perseverance collects and bring them back to Earth for study in the laboratories across the, the globe. And when that happens, samples from Mars's Perseverance rover may tell us that at one time billions of years ago, life existed elsewhere in the universe. But they may also indicate the opposite. And what then? We have strong evidence that Jezero Crater once had the ingredients for life. And if we conclude after return sample analysis that the lake was uninhabited, we will have learned something important about the reach of life in, in the cosmos, said Williford. Whether or not Mars was ever a living planet, it's essential to understand how rocky planets like ours form and evolve. Why did our own planet remain hospitable as Mars became a desolate wasteland?
Perseverance may not provide the final word on whether the red planet ever contains life, but the data it collects and the discoveries it makes will play a key role whenever the result is reached. Humanity has been focusing on Mars since Galileo became the first human to see it through a telescope in 1609. Did it once have life? The answer may be awaiting us somewhere in Jezero Crater. NASA's Perseverance rover will begin the process of finding out tomorrow. More about the mission. A key objective of Perseverance's mission on Mars is astrobiology, including the search for signs of ancient microbial life. The rover will characterize the planet's geology and past climate, pave the way for human exploration of the red planet, and be the first mission to collect and cache Martian rock and regolith. Subsequent missions by NASA in cooperation with the ESA, the European Space Agency, would send spacecraft to Mars to collect these sealed samples from the surface and return them to Earth for in-depth analysis. The Mars 2020 mission is part of a larger program that includes missions to the Moon as a way to prepare for human exploration of the Red Planet. Charged with returning astronauts to the Moon by 2024, NASA will establish a sustained human presence on and around the Moon by 2028 through NASA's Artemis Lunar Exploration Plant. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which we refer to as JPL, is managed for NASA by Caltech in Pasadena, California, and JPL built and manages operations of the Perseverance rover. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to see what they find. Let's continue reading in the text, Life in the Outer Solar System. The massive gas and ice giant planets of the outer solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, are almost certainly not habitable for life as we know it, but some of their moons might be. Although these worlds in the outer solar system contain abundant water, they receive so little warming sunlight in their distant orbits that it was long believed they would be geologically dead balls of hard-frozen ice and rock. As it turns out, missions to the outer solar system have found something much more interesting. Jupiter's moon, Europa, revealed itself to the Voyager and Galileo missions as an active world whose icy surface apparently conceals an ocean with a depth of tens to perhaps a hundred kilometers. As the moon orbits Jupiter, the planet's massive gravity creates tides on Europa, just as our own moon's gravity creates our ocean tides, and the friction of all that pushing and pulling generates enough heat to keep the water in liquid form. Similar tides act upon other moons if they are orbit close to their planet. Scientists now think that six or more of the outer solar system's icy moons may harbor liquid water oceans for the same reason. Among these, Europa and Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, have thus far been the greatest interest to astrobiologists. Europa has probably had an ocean for most or all of its history, but habitability requires more than just liquid water. Life also requires energy, and because sunlight does not penetrate below the kilometers-thick ice crust of Europa, this would have to be chemical energy. One of Europa's key attributes from an astrobiology perspective is that its ocean is most likely in direct contact with an underlying rocky mantle, and the interaction of water and rocks, especially at high temperatures, as within Earth's hydrothermal vent systems, yields a reducing chemistry that's like one half of a chemical battery. To complete the battery and provide energy that could be used by life requires an oxidizing chemistry to also be available. On Earth, when chemically reducing vent fluids meet oxygen-containing seawater, the energy that becomes available often supports thriving communities of microorganisms and animals on the seafloor, far from the light of the sun. 
The Galileo mission found that Europa's icy surface does contain an abundance of oxidizing chemicals. This means that the availability of energy to support life depends very much on whether the chemistry of the surface and ocean can mix, despite the kilometers of ice between them. That Europa's ice crust appears geologically young, that is only tens of millions of years old on average, and that it is active makes it tantalizing to think that such mixing might indeed occur. Understanding whether and how much exchange occurs between the surface and the ocean of Europa will be a key science objective of future missions to Europa and a major step forward in understanding whether this moon could be a cradle of life. In 2005, the Cassini mission performed a close flyby of a small moon of Saturn, Enceladus, and made a remarkable discovery. Plumes of gas and icy material were venting from the moon's south polar region at a collective rate of about 250 kilograms of material per second. Several observations, including the discovery of salts associated with the icy material, suggested that their source is a liquid water ocean beneath tens of kilometers of ice. Although it remains to be shown definitively whether the ocean is logical, is local or global, transient or long-lived, it does appear to be in contact and to have reacted with the rocky interior. As on Europa, this is probably a necessary, though not sufficient, condition for habitability. What makes Enceladus so enticing to planetary scientists, though, are those plumes of material that seem to come directly from its ocean. Samples of the interior are there for the taking by any spacecraft sent flying through. For a future mission, such samples could yield evidence not only of whether Enceladus is habitable, but indeed whether it is home to life. Saturn's big moon Titan is very different from both Enceladus and Europa. Although it may host liquid water deep within its interior, it is the surface of Titan and its unusual chemistry that makes this moon such an interesting place. Titan's thick atmosphere, the only one among moons in our solar system, is composed mostly of nitrogen, but also about 5% methane. In the upper atmosphere, the sun's ultraviolet light breaks apart and recombines these molecules into more complex organic compounds that are collectively known as tholins. The tholins shroud Titan in an orange haze, and imagery from the Cassini and from the Huygens probe that descended to the Titan surface show that the heavier particles appear to accumulate on the surface, even forming dunes that are cut and sculpted by flows of liquid hydrocarbons, such as liquid methane. Some scientists see this organic chemical factory as a natural laboratory that may yield some clues about the solar system's early chemistry, perhaps even chemistry that could support the origin of life. We've reached a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, in January 2005, the Huygens probe descended to the surface of Titan and relayed data, including imagery of the landing site for about 90 minutes. You can watch a video about the descent of Huygens to Titan's surface here. Habitable planets orbiting other stars. One of the most exciting developments in astronomy during the last two decades is the ability to detect exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars. As we saw in the chapter on the formation of stars and planets, since, since the discovery of the first exoplanet in 1995, there have been thousands of confirmed detections and many more candidates that are not yet confirmed. These include several dozen possibly habitable exoplanets. Such numbers finally allow us to make some predictions about exoplanets and their life-hosting potential. The majority of stars with mass similar to the Sun appear to host at least one planet, with multi-planet systems like our own not unusual.
How many of these planets might be habitable, and how could we search for life there? We've reached another link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link. It reads, the NASA Exoplanet Archive is an up-to-date searchable online source of data and tools on everything to do with exoplanets. Explore stellar and exoplanet parameters and characteristics. Find the latest news on exoplanet discoveries. Plot your own data interactively. Wow, that's cool. And link to other related sources, resources. In evaluating the prospect for life in distant planetary systems, astrobiologists have developed the idea of a habitable zone, a region around a star where suitable conditions might exist for life. This concept focuses on life's requirement for liquid water, and the habitable zone is generally thought of as a range of distances from the central star in which water could be present in liquid form at a planet's surface. In our own solar system, for example, Venus has surface temperatures far above the boiling point of water. This is primarily due to its runaway greenhouse effect, by the way. And Mars has surface temperatures that are almost always below the freezing point of water. Again, Mars doesn't really have an atmosphere and so can't keep itself as warm as we can. Earth, which orbits between the two, has a surface temperature that is just right to keep much of our surface water in liquid form. Whether surface temperatures are suitable for maintaining liquid water depends on a planet's radiation budget, how much starlight energy it absorbs and retains, and whether or how processes like winds and ocean circulation distribute that energy around the planet. How much stellar energy a planet receives, in turn, depends on how much and what sort of light the star emits, and how far the planet is from the star, how much it reflects back into space, and how effectively the planet's atmosphere can retain heat through the greenhouse effect. All can vary substantially and all matter a lot. For example, Venus receives about twice as much starlight per square meter as Earth, but because of its dense cloud cover also reflects about twice as much of that light back to space as Earth does. Mars receives only about half as much starlight as Earth, but also reflects only about half as much. Thus, despite their differing orbital distances, the three planets actually absorb comparable amounts of sunlight energy. Why then are they so dramatically different? Some of the gases that make up planetary atmospheres are very effective at trapping infrared light, the very range of wavelengths at which planets radiate thermal energy back to space. And this can raise the planet's surface temperature quite a bit more than it would otherwise. This is the same greenhouse effect that is of much concern for global warming on our planet. Earth's natural greenhouse effect, which comes mostly from water vapor and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, raises our average surface temperature by about 33 degrees Celsius over the value it would have if there were no greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mars has a very thin atmosphere and thus very little greenhouse warming, only about 2 degrees Celsius worth, while Venus is a massive carbon dioxide atmosphere that creates a very strong greenhouse warming, about 510 degrees Celsius worth. These worlds are much colder and much hotter, respectively, than Earth would be if moved into their orbits. Thus, we must consider the nature of any atmosphere as well as the distance from the star in evaluating the range of habitability. Of course, as we've learned, stars also vary widely in the intensity and spectrum, that is the wavelengths of light, they emit. Some are much brighter and hotter, or bluer, while others are significantly dimmer and cooler, or redder. And the distance of the habitable zone varies accordingly. For example, the habitable zone around an M dwarf star is 3 to 30 times closer than for a G-type sun-like star. 
there is a lot of interest in whether such systems could be habitable because although they have some potential downsides for supporting life, M dwarf stars are by far the most numerous and long-lived in our galaxy. The luminosity of stars like Saturn also increases over the main sequence lifetime, but this means that the habitable zone migrates outward as the star system ages. Calculations indicate that the power output of the Sun, for example, has increased by at least 30% over the last 4 billion years. Thus, Venus was once within the habitable zone, while Earth received a level of solar energy insufficient to keep the modern Earth with its present atmosphere from freezing over. In spite of this, there is plenty of geological evidence that liquid water was present on Earth's surface billions of years ago. The phenomenon of increasing stellar output and an outwardly migrating habitable zone has led to another concept. The continuously habitable zone is defined by the range of orbits that would retain within the habitable zone during the entire lifetime of the star system. As you might imagine, the continuously habitable zone is quite a bit narrower than the habitable zone in any one time in a star's history. The recent, the nearest star to the Sun, Proxima Centauri, is an M star that has a planet with a mass of at least 1.3 Earth masses, taking about 11 days to orbit. At the distance for such a quick orbit, which is 0.05 an AU, or 1 20th the distance between the Earth and the Sun, the planet may be in the habitable zone of its star. Although weather conditions on such a planet near such a star are hospitable for life is a matter of great scientific debate. Even when planets orbit within the habitable zone of their star, there's no guarantee that they are habitable. For example, Venus today has virtually no water, so even if it were suddenly moved to a just right orbit within the habitable zone, a critical requirement for life would still be lacking. Scientists are working to understand all the factors that define the habitable zone and the habitability of planets orbiting within that zone, because this will be our primary guide in targeting exoplanets on which to seek evidence of life. As technology for detecting exoplanets has advanced, so too has our potential to find Earth-sized worlds within the habitable zones of their parent stars. Of the confirmed or candidate exoplanets known at the time of writing, nearly 300 are considered to be orbiting within the habitable zone, and more than 10% are roughly Earth-sized. We've reached yet another link to learning box, and I encourage you to visit the link. It reads, explore the habitable universe at the online planetary habitability laboratory created by the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo. See the potentially habitable planets and other interesting places in the universe, watch video clips, and link to numerous related resources on astrobiology. Biomarkers. Our observations suggest increasingly that Earth-sized planets orbiting within the habitable zone may be common in the galaxy. Current estimates suggest that more than 40% of stars have at least one. But are any of them inhabited? With no ability to send probes there to sample, we will have to derive the answer from the light and other radiation that come to us from these faraway systems. What types of observations might constitute good evidence for life? To be sure, we need to look for robust biospheres, those are atmospheres, surfaces, and or oceans, capable of creating planet-scale change. Earth hosts such a biosphere. The composition of our atmosphere and the spectrum of light reflected from our planet differ considerably from what would be expected in the absence of life. Presently, Earth is the only body in our solar system for which this is true, despite the possibility that habitable conditions might prevail 
in the subsurface of Mars or inside the icy moons of the outer solar system. Even if life exists on these worlds, it is very unlikely that it could yield planet-scale changes that are both telescopically observable and clearly biological in origin. What makes Earth special among the potentially habitable worlds in our solar system is that it has a photosynthetic biosphere. This requires the presence of liquid water at the planet's surface, where organisms have direct access to sunlight. The habitable zone concept focuses on this requirement for surface liquid water, even though we know that subsurface habitable conditions could prevail at more distant orbits, exactly because these worlds would have biospheres detectable at a distance. Indeed, plants and photosynthetic microorganisms are so abundant at Earth's surface that they affect the color of the light that our planet reflects into space. We appear greener in visible wavelengths and reflect more near-infrared light than we would otherwise. Moreover, photosynthesis has changed Earth's atmosphere at a large scale. More than 20% of our atmosphere comes from photosynthetic waste products, including oxygen. <laughs> Such high levels would be very difficult to explain in the absence of life. Other gases, such as nitrous oxide and methane, when found simultaneously with oxygen, have also been suggested as possible indicators of life. When sufficiently abundant in the atmosphere, such gases could be detected by their effect on the spectrum of light that a planet emits or reflects. As we saw in a previous chapter, astronomers today are beginning to have the capability of detecting the spectrum of atmospheres in some planets orbiting other stars. Astronomers also have thus concluded that, at least initially, a search for life outside our solar system should focus on exoplanets that are as much like Earth as possible, roughly Earth-sized planets orbiting the habitable zone, and look for the presence of gases in the atmospheres or colors in the visible spectrum that are hard to explain except by the presence of biology. Simple, right? <laughs> in reality, the search for exoplanet life poses many challenges. As you might imagine, this task is more challenging for planetary systems that are farther away, and in practical terms, this will limit our search to the habitable worlds closest to our own. Should we become limited to a small, very small number of nearby targets, it will also become important to consider the habitability of planets orbiting the M-dwarfs, as discussed above. If we manage to separate out a clean signal from a planet and find some features in the light spectrum that might be indicative of life, we need to work hard to think of any non-biological processes that might account for them. Life is the hypothesis of last resort, noted astronomer Carl Sagan, meaning that we must exhaust all other explanations for what we see before claiming to have found the evidence for extraterrestrial biology. This requires some understanding of what processes might operate on worlds that we will know relatively little about. What we find on Earth can serve as a guide, but also leads us potentially to being astray. Recall, for example, that it would be extremely difficult to account for the abundance of oxygen in Earth's atmosphere, except by the presence of biology. But it has been hypothesized that oxygen could build up to substantial levels on planets orbiting M-dwarf stars through the action of ultraviolet radiation on the atmosphere, with no need for biology at all. It will be critical to understand where such false positives might exist in carrying out our search. 
we need to understand that we might not be able to detect biospheres, even if they exist. Life has flourished on Earth for perhaps 3.5 billion years, but the atmospheric biosignatures that today would supply good evidence for life to distant astronomers have not been present for all of that time. Oxygen, for example, accumulated to detectable levels in our atmospheres only about 2 billion years ago. Could life on Earth have been detected before that time? Scientists are working actively to understand what additional features might have provided evidence of life on Earth during that early history and thereby help our chances of finding life beyond. Section 30.4, The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. By the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. One, explain why spaceships from extraterrestrial civilization are unlikely to have visited us. Two, list efforts by mankind to communicate with other civilizations through messages on spacecraft. And three, understand the various SETI programs scientists are undertaking. Given all the developments discussed in this chapter, it seems likely that life could have developed on many planets around other stars. Even if that life is microbial, we saw that we may soon have ways to search for chemical biosignatures. This search is of fundamental importance for understanding biology, but it doesn't answer the question, are we alone? that we raised at the beginning of this chapter. When we asked this question, many people think of other intelligent creatures, perhaps beings that have developed technology similar to our own. If any intelligent technical civilizations have arisen, as has happened on Earth in the most recent blink of cosmic time, how could we make contact with them? This problem is similar to making contact with people who live in a remote part of Earth. If students in the United States want to converse with students in Australia, for example, they have a couple of choices. Either one group gets on an airplane and travels to meet the other, or they communicate by sending messages remotely. Given how expensive airline tickets can be, most students might select the messaging route. In the same way, if we want to get in touch with intelligent life around other stars, we can travel or we can try to exchange messages. Because of the great distances involved, interstellar space travel would be slow and prohibitively expensive. The fastest spacecraft the human species has built so far would take almost 80,000 years to get to the nearest star. While we could certainly design a faster craft, the more quickly we require it to travel, the greater the energy cost involved. To reach neighboring stars in less than a human lifespan, we would have to travel close to the speed of light. In that case, however, the expense would become truly astronomical. Interstellar Travel Bernard Oliver, an engineer with an abiding interest in life elsewhere, made a revealing calculation about the costs of rapid interstellar space travel. Since we don't know what sort of technology we or other civilizations might someday develop, Oliver considered a trip to the nearest star and back again in a spaceship with a perfect engine, one that would convert its fuel into energy with 100% efficiency. Even with a perfect engine, the energy cost of a single round-trip journey at 70% the speed of light turns out to be equivalent to several hundred thousand years worth of the total U.S. electrical energy consumption. The cost of such travel is literally out of this world. This is one reason astronomers are so skeptical about claims that UFOs are spaceships from extraterrestrial civilizations. 
Given the distance and energy expense involved, it seems unlikely that dozens of UFOs and even UFO abductions claimed each year could be visitors from other stars so fascinated by Earth civilization that they're willing to spend fantastically large amounts of energy or time to reach us. Nor does it seem credible that these visitors have made this long and expensive journey and then systematically avoided contacting our governments or political and intellectual leaders. Not every UFO report has been explained. In many cases, the observations are sketchy or contradictory, but investigations almost always converts them to IFOs, identified flying objects, or NFOs, not at all flying objects. While some are hoaxes, others are natural phenomena, such as bright planets, ball lighting, fireballs, bright meteors, or even flocks of birds that landed in an oil slick to make their bellies reflective. Still others are human craft, such as private planes with some lights missing or a secret military aircraft. It's also interesting that the group of people who most avidly look at the night sky, the amateur astronomers, have never reported UFO sightings. Further, not a single UFO has ever left behind any physical evidence that could be tested in a laboratory and shown to be of non-terrestrial origin. Another common aspect of belief that aliens are visiting Earth comes from people who have difficulty accepting human accomplishments. There are many books and TV shows, for example, that assert that humans could not have built the Great Pyramids of Egypt, and therefore they must have been built by aliens. The huge statues on Easter Island are sometimes claimed to have been built by aliens as well. Some people think that the accomplishments of space exploration today are based on alien technology. However, the evidence from archaeology and history is clear. Ancient monuments were built by ancient people, whose brains and ingenuity were every bit as capable as ours today, even if they didn't have electronic textbooks like you and I. Messages on spacecraft. While space travel by living creatures seems very difficult, robot probes can travel over long distances and over long periods of time. Five spacecraft, two pioneers, two voyagers, and new horizons are now leaving the solar system. At their coasting speeds, they will take hundreds of thousands or millions of years to get anywhere close to another star. On the other hand, they were the first products of human technology to go beyond our home system. So we want to put messages on board to show where we came from. Each pioneer carries a plaque with a pictorial message engraved on a gold anodized aluminum plate. The Voyagers, launched in 1977, have audio and video records attached, which allowed the inclusion of over a hundred photographs and a selection of music from around the world. Wouldn't it have been fun to choose what messages and music to include? Given the enormous space between stars in our section of the galaxy, it's very unlikely that these messages will ever be received by anyone. They're more like a note in a bottle thrown into the sea by a shipwrecked sailor, with no realistic expectation of its being found soon, but a slim hope that perhaps someday, somehow, someone will know of the sender's fate. We've reached a Making Connections box, and it's titled The Voyager Message. It reads... An excerpt from the Voyager record. We cast this message into the cosmos. It's likely to survive a billion years into our future when our civilization is profoundly altered. If another civilization intercepts Voyager and can understand these recorded contents, here is our message. This is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. 
We are attempting to survive our time so that we may live into yours. We hope someday, having solved the problems we face, to join a community of galactic civilizations. This record represents our hope and our determination and our goodwill in a vast and awesome universe. Jimmy Carter, President of the United States of America, June 16th, 1977. Boy, that makes me feel teary, <laughs> really. Communicating with the stars. If direct visits among stars are unlikely, we must turn to the alternative for making contact, exchanging messages. Here, the news is a lot better. We already use a messenger, light, or more generally, electromagnetic waves that moves through space at the fastest speed in the universe. Traveling at 300,000 kilometers per second, light reaches the nearest star in only four years and does so at a tiny fraction of the cost of sending material objects. These advantages are so clear and obvious that we assume they will occur to any other species of intelligent beings that develop technology. However, we have access to a wide spectrum of electromagnetic radiation, ranging from the longest wavelength radio waves to the shortest wavelength gamma rays. Which would be the best for interstellar communication? It would not be smart to select a wavelength that's easily absorbed by interstellar gas and dust, or one that's unlikely to penetrate the atmosphere of a planet like ours. Nor would we want to pick a wavelength that has lots of competition for attention in our neighborhood. One final criterion makes the selection easier. We want the radiation to be inexpensive enough to produce in large quantities. When we consider all these requirements, radio waves turn out to be the best answer. Being the lowest frequency and lowest energy band of the spectrum, they're not very expensive to produce, and we already use them extensively for communications on Earth. They're not significantly absorbed by interstellar dust and gas, with some exceptions, they easily pass through Earth's atmosphere and through the atmospheres of the other planets we're acquainted with. The Cosmic Haystack. Having made the decision that radio is the most likely means of communication among intelligent civilizations, we still have many questions and a daunting task ahead of us. Shall we send a message or try to receive one? Obviously, if every civilization decides to receive only, then no one will be sending and everyone will be disappointed. On the other hand, it may be appropriate for us to begin by listening, since we are likely to be among the most primitive civilizations in the galaxy who are interested in exchanging messages. We don't make this statement to insult the human species, which, with certain exceptions, we're rather fond of. Instead, we base it on the fact that humans have had the ability to receive or send a radio message across interstellar distances for only a few decades. Compared to the ages of stars in the galaxy, this is a mere instant. If there are civilizations out there that are ahead of us in development by even a short time, in the cosmic sense, they are likely to have a technology head start of many, many years. In other words, we, who have just started, may be the youngest species in the galaxy with this capability. Just as the youngest members of a community are often told to be quiet and listen to their elders for a while before they say something foolish, so may we want to begin our exercise in extraterrestrial communication by listening. Even restricting our activities to listening, however, leaves us with an array of challenging questions. For example, if an extraterrestrial civilization's signal is too weak to be detected by our present-day radio telescopes, we won't be able to detect them. 
In addition, it would be very expensive for an extraterrestrial civilization to broadcast on a huge number of channels. Most likely, they select one or a few channels for their particular message. Communicating on a narrow band of channels also helps distinguish an artificial message from the radio static that comes from natural cosmic processes. But the radio band contains an astronomically large number of possible channels. How can we know in advance which one they will have selected and how they have coded their message into a signal? Fable 30.1 summarizes these and other factors that scientists must grapple with when trying to tune in to radio messages from distant civilizations. Because their success depends on either guessing right about so many factors or searching through all the possibilities for each factor, some scientists have compared their quest to looking for a needle in a haystack. Thus, they like to say that the list of factors in Table 30.1 defines the cosmic haystack problem. Table 30.1 presents the list of factors as a series of questions, and they are, from which direction is the message coming? On what channels is the message being broadcast? How wide in frequency is the channel? How strong is the signal? Is the signal continuous, or does it shut off at times? Does the signal drift in frequency because of the changing relative motion of the source and the receiver? How is the message encoded in the signal? Can we even recognize a message from a completely alien species? Might it take a form we don't at all expect? Radio searches. Although the cosmic haystack problem seems daunting, many other research problems in astronomy also require a large investment of time, equipment, and patient effort. And of course, if we don't search, we're sure not to find anything. The very first search was conducted by astronomer Frank Drake in 1960 using the 85-foot antenna at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, called Project Ozma after the queen of the exotic Land of Oz in the children's stories of L. Frank Baum. His experiment involved looking at about 7,200 channels and two nearby stars over a period of about 200 hours. Though he found nothing, Drake demonstrated that we had the technology to do such a search and set the stage for more sophisticated projects that followed. Receivers are constantly improving, and the sensitivity of SETI programs, SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is advancing rapidly. Equally important, modern electronics and software allow simultaneous searches on millions of frequencies or channels. If we can thus cover a broad frequency range, the cosmic haystack problem of guessing the right frequency largely goes away. One powerful telescope array, funded with an initial contribution from Microsoft founder Paul Allen, is built for SETI searches in is the Allen Telescope in Northern California. Other radio telescopes being used for such searches have included the giant Arecibo radio dish in Puerto Rico, which just collapsed. The recently completed and even larger fast dish in China and the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, which is the largest steerable radio telescope in the world. In 2015, Silicon Valley investor and philanthropist Yuri Milner donated $100 million to the University of California at Berkeley to enhance the SETI endeavor for 10 years. 
The project, called Breakthrough Listen, is enlisting more telescopes around the world in the search and is developing sophisticated artificial intelligent programs to scour the incoming signals for intelligent messages. The aim is to search more stars and more channels than any SETI project so far. What kinds of signals do we hope to pick up? We on Earth are inadvertently sending out a flood of radio signals dominated by military radar systems. This is a kind of leakage signal, similar to the wasted light energy that's beamed upward by poorly designed streetlights and advertising signs. Could we detect a similar leakage of radio signals from another civilization? The answer is just barely but only for the nearest stars. For the most part, therefore, current radio SETI searches are looking for beacons, assuming that civilizations might be intentionally drawing attention to themselves, or perhaps sending a message to another world or outpost that lies in our direction. Our prospects for success depend on how often civilizations arise, how long they last, and how patient they are about broadcasting their locations to the cosmos. We have reached a Voyagers in Astronomy box, and it's on Jill Tarter. The title is Jill Tarter Trying to Make Contact. The box reads, in 1997, we've reached a Voyagers in Astronomy box on Jill Tarter, and the title is Jill Tarter Trying to Make Contact. The box reads, 1997 was quite a year for Jill Cornell Tarter, one of the world's leading scientists in the SETI field. The SETI Institute announced that she would be the recipient of its first endowed chair, the equivalent of an endowed research professorship named in honor of Bernard Oliver. The National Science Foundation approved a proposal by a group of scientists and educators that she headed to develop an innovative hands-on high school curriculum based on the ideas of cosmic evolution, the topics of this chapter. And at roughly the same time, she was being besieged with requests for media interviews as news reports identified her as the model for Ellie Arroway, the protagonist of Contact, Carl Sagan's best-selling novel about SETI. The book had been made into a high-budget science fiction film, starring Jodie Foster, who had talked with Tartar before taking the role. Tartar is quick to point out, Carl Sagan wrote a book about a woman who does what I do, but not about me. Still, as the only woman in such a senior position in the small field of SETI, she was the center of a great deal of public attention. However, colleagues and reporters pointed out that this was nothing compared to what would happen if her search for radio signals from other civilizations reported a success. Being the only woman in a group is not a new situation to Tartar, who often found herself the only woman in her advanced science or math classes. Her father encouraged her, both her interest in science and her tinkering. As an undergraduate at Cornell University, she majored in engineering physics. That training became key to putting together and maintaining the complex systems that automatically scan for signals from other civilizations. Switching to astrophysics for her graduate studies, she wrote a PhD thesis that, among other topics, considered the formation of failed stars, those whose mass was not sufficient to ignite the nuclear reactions that power more massive stars like our own sun. Tartar coined the term brown dwarf for these small dim objects, and it remained the name astronomers use ever since.
It was while she was still in graduate school that one of her professors at the University of California, Berkeley, asked her if she wanted to be involved in a small experiment to siphon off a bit of radiation from a radio telescope as astronomers used it year in and year out to see if there was any hint of an intelligently coded radio message buried in the radio noise. Her engineering and computer programming skills became essential to the project, and soon she was hooked on the search for life elsewhere. Thus began an illustrious career working full-time, searching for what she calls the techno-signatures, or signs of technology, from extraterrestrial civilizations. Tartar has received many awards, including being elected Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2002, the Alder Planetarian Woman in Space Science Award in 2003, and the 2009, or a 2009, TED Prize. That's cool. We've reached a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, watch the TED Talk Jill Tarter gave on the fascination of the search for intelligence. We've come to another box. It's the uh, Drake Equation. We've come to another box, and it's actually an example box. And I want to go through it because it discusses the Drake equation, which is really interesting and fairly easy to grasp. So let's go through it. At the first scientific meeting devoted to SETI, Frank Drake wrote an equation on the blackboard that took the difficult question of estimating the number of civilizations in the galaxy and broke it down into a series of smaller, more manageable questions. Ever since then, both astronomers and students have used this Drake equation as a means for approaching the most challenging questions. How likely is it that we are alone? Since this is at present an unanswerable question, Astronomer Jill Tarter has called the Drake Equation a way of organizing our ignorance. The form of the Drake Equation is very simple. To estimate the number of communicating civilizations that currently exist in the galaxy, and we'll define these terms more carefully in a moment, we multiply the rate of formation of such civilizations, the number per year, by their average lifetime in years. In symbols, this is n equals r total times l, where n is the number of communicating civilizations that currently exist in the galaxy, r total is the rate of formation of such civilizations, and l is the average lifetime in years of those civilizations. To make this formula easier to use and more interesting, Drake separated the rate of formation into a series of probabilities. He said r total is equal to r star times fp times fe times fl times fi times fc. R star is the rate of formation of stars like the sun in our galaxy, which is very roughly around 10 stars per year. Each of the other terms is a fraction or a probability, something that's less than one, and the product of all of these probabilities is itself the total probability that each star will have an intelligent, technological, communicating civilization that we might want to talk to. <laughs> we have Fp is equal to the fraction of these stars that form each year with planets. Fe is the fraction of planetary systems that include habitable planets. FL is the fraction of habitable planets that actually support life. FI is the fraction of inhabited planets that develop advanced intelligence. 
FC is the fraction of these intelligent civilizations that developed science and technology to build radio telescopes and transmitters. Each of these factors can be discussed and perhaps evaluated, but we must guess at many of the values. In particular, we don't know how to calculate the probability of something that happened once on Earth, but has not been observed elsewhere. And these include the development of life, of intelligent life, and of technological life, the last three factors in the equation. One important advance in estimating the terms of the Drake equation comes from the recent discovery of exoplanets. When the Drake equation was first written, no one had any idea whether planets and planetary systems were common. Now we know they are, another example of the Copernican principle. There's a link to learning box that follows this example that says, read Frank Drake's own account of how he came up with his equation. And here is a recent interview with Frank Drake by one of the authors of this textbook. As always, I encourage you to visit the links in this box. Let's continue the reading. SETI outside the radio realm. For the reasons discussed above, most SETI programs search for signals at radio wavelengths. But in science, if there are other approaches to answering an unsolved question, we don't want to neglect them. So astronomers have been thinking about other ways we could pick up evidence for the existence of technologically advanced civilizations. Recently, technology has allowed astronomers to expand the search into the domain of visible light. You might think that it would be hopeless to try to detect a flash of visible light from a planet given the brilliance of the star it orbits. This is why we usually cannot measure the reflected light of planets around other stars. The feeble light of the planet is simply swamped by the big light in the neighborhood, so another civilization would need a mighty strong beacon to compete with their star. However, in recent years, human engineers have learned how to make flashes of light brighter than the sun. The trick is to turn on the light for a very brief time so that the costs are more manageable. But ultra-bright, ultra-short laser pulses operating for periods of a billionth of a second can pack a lot of energy and can be coded to carry a message. We also have the technology to detect such short pulses, not with the human senses, but with special detectors that can be tuned to hunt automatically for such short pulses of light from nearby stars. Why would any civilization try to outshone its own star in this way? It turns out that the cost of sending an ultra-short laser pulse in the direction of a few promising stars can be less than the cost of sweeping a continuous radio message across the whole sky. Or perhaps they, too, have special fondness for light messages because one of their senses evolved using light. Several programs are now experimenting with optical SETI searches, which can be done with only a modest telescope. The term optical here means using visible light. If we let our imaginations expand, we might think of other ways to look for techno-signatures, signs of other technology. For example, what if a truly advanced civilization should decide to, or need to, renovate its planetary system to maximize the area for life? It could do so by breaking apart some planets or moons and building a ring of solid material that surrounds or encloses the star and intercepts some or all of its light. This huge artificial ring, or sphere, might glow very brightly at infrared wavelengths, as the starlight it receives is eventually converted to heat and re-radiated into space. That infrared radiation could be detected by our instruments, and searches for such infrared sources are also <laughs> underway. Should we transmit in addition to listening? 
Our planet has some leakage of radio waves into space from FM radio, television, military radars, and communication between Earth and our orbiting spacecraft. However, such leakage radiation is still quite weak and therefore difficult to detect at the distances of the stars, at least with the radio technology that we have. So at present time, our attempts to communicate with other civilizations that may be out there mostly involve trying to receive messages, but not sending any ourselves. Some scientists, however, think that it's inconsistent to search for beacons from other civilizations without announcing our own presence in some similar way. So should we be making regular attempts at sending easily decoded messages into space? Some scientists warn that our civilization is too immature and defenseless to announce ourselves at this early point in development. The decision whether to transmit or not turns out to be an interesting reflection of how we feel about ourselves and our place in the universe. Discussions of transmission also raise the question of who should speak for planet Earth. Today, anyone and everyone can broadcast radio signals, and many businesses, religious groups, and governments do. It would be a modest step for the same organizations to use or build large radio telescopes and begin intentional transmissions <laughs> that are much stronger than the signals that leak from Earth today. And if we intercept a signal from an alien civilization, then the issue arises as to whether to reply. Who should make the decision about whether, when, and how humanity announces itself to the cosmos? Is there freedom of speech when it comes to sending radio message to other civilizations? Do all the nations of Earth have to agree before we send a signal strong enough that it has a serious chance of being received at the distances of the stars? How our species reaches a decision about these kinds of questions may well be a test of whether or not there is intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> hmm, not sure about that one quite yet. Conclusion, whether or not we ultimately turn out to be the only intelligent species in our part of the galaxy, I'm still laughing, our exploration of the cosmos will surely continue. An important part of that exploration will be the search for... <laughs> for biomarkers from inhabited planets that do not produce, that have not produced technological creatures <laughs> that send out radio signals. After all, creatures like butterflies and dolphins may never build radio antennas, but we are happy to share with our planet with them, and we'd be delighted to find their counterparts on existing worlds. Whether life exists elsewhere is just one of the unsolved problems in astronomy that we have discussed in this text. A humble acknowledgement of how much we have left to learn about the universe is one of the fundamental hallmarks of science. This shouldn't prevent us from feeling exhilarated about how much we have already managed to discover and feeling curious about what else we might learn in the years to come. <laughs> That's the best part. This progress report on the ideas of astronomy ends here, but we hope that your interest in the universe does not. We hope you will keep up with the developments in astronomy through media and online, or by going to an occasional public lecture by a local scientist, or by becoming a scientist yourself. Just imagine all of the amazing things that future research projects will reveal about both the universe and our connection to it. Alright guys, we've made it. This is the summary for Chapter 30. 30.1, The Cosmic Context for Life. Life on Earth is based on the presence of a key unit known as an organic molecule, a molecule that contains carbon, especially complex hydrocarbons. 
Our solar system formed about 5 billion years ago from a cloud of gas and dust enriched by several generations of heavier element production in stars. Isn't that amazing? Life is made up of chemical combinations of these elements made by stars. The Copernican principle, which suggests that there is nothing special about our place in the universe, implies that if life could develop on Earth, it should be able to develop in other places as well. The Fermi paradox asks why, if life is common, more advanced life forms have not contacted us. 30.2 Astrobiology the study of life in the universe, including its origin on Earth, is called astrobiology. Life as we know it requires water, certain elemental raw materials that include carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur, energy, and an environment in which the complex chemistry of life is stable. Carbon-based or organic molecules are abundant in space and may also have been produced by processes on Earth. Life appears to have spread around our planet within 400 million years after the end of heavy bombardment, if not sooner. The actual origin of life, the processes leading from chemistry to biology, is not completely understood. Once life took hold, it evolved to use many energy sources, including first a range of different chemistries and later light, and diversified across a range of environmental conditions that humans consider extreme. This proliferation of life into so many environmental niches is so relatively soon after our planet became habitable has served to make many scientists optimistic about the chances that life could exist elsewhere. 30.3. Searching for life beyond Earth The search for life beyond Earth offers several intriguing targets. Mars appears to have been more similar to Earth during its early history than it is now with evidence for liquid water on its ancient surface, and perhaps now even below ground. The accessibility of the Martian surface to our spacecraft offers exciting potential to directly examine ancient and modern samples for evidence of life. In the outer solar system, the moons Europa and Enceladus likely host vast sub-ice oceans that may directly contact the underlying rocks, a good start in providing habitable conditions. While Titan offers a fascinating laboratory for understanding the sorts of organic chemistry that might ultimately provide materials for life. And the last decade of research on exoplanets leads us to believe that there may be billions of habitable planets in the Milky Way galaxy. Study of these worlds offers the potential to find biomarkers indicating the presence of life. 30.4 The Search for Extraterrestrial Life some astronomers are engaged in the search for extraterrestrial intelligent life, like in SETI. Because other planetary systems are so far away, traveling to stars is either very slow or extremely expensive in terms of the energy required. Despite many UFO reports and tremendous media publicity, there is no evidence that any of these are related to extraterrestrial visits. Scientists have determined that the best way to communicate with any intelligent civilizations out there is by using electromagnetic waves, and radio waves seem best suited to the task. So far, they have only begun to comb the many different possible stars, frequencies, signal types, and other factors that make up what we call the cosmic haystack problem. Some astronomers are also undertaking searches for brief bright pulses of visible light and infrared signatures of huge construction projects by advanced civilizations. If we do find a signal someday, deciding whether to answer and what to answer may be two of the greatest challenges humanity will face.
This is the end of the reading for chapter 30 and of the OpenStax Astronomy textbook. And I just want to thank you for going on this journey with me. It's been a long one, and it's been an interesting one. I thought I would end with a few quotes from Carl Sagan. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Imaginations will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. The cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff, and we are a way for the universe to know itself. Every one of us is, in the cosmic perspective, precious. If a human disagrees with you, let him live. In a hundred billion galaxies, you will not find another. Frederick Douglass taught us that literacy is the path from slavery to freedom. There are many kinds of slavery and many kinds of freedom, but reading is still the path. And the last one I'll read, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. When we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. So are our emotions in the presence of great art or music or literature or acts of exemplary selfless courage, such as those of Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. The notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. Carl Sagan was an astronomer, a cosmologist, an astrophysicist, an astrobiologist, an author, a poet, and a science communicator. Who says you can't do more than one thing in your life? I hope to see you all very soon on our shared journey through the cosmos.